Welcome to the Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies course. This is the sixth audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will explain, one, the many types of feminism, two, intersectionality. I recommend watching the video of Kimberly Crenshaw's TED Talk before listening to the episode. The link is on the syllabus and in the transcripts. The video has captions you can turn on. Let's get started. The song for today is Emta Nyazik Yama by Dom. If you watch the video with closed captioning, there are English lyrics available. Dom, meaning everlasting in Arabic, is a Palestinian hip-hop crew that raps in Arabic. Dom began working together in the late 1990s. In 2015, Meza Da officially joined the group. Dom's lyrics focus on issues of social injustice and inequality. Emta Nyazik Yama, When Will You Get Married, tackles the social pressure of marriage. The segment of the song that I played includes Meza's rap. The lyrics translated into English are, Seven alarms on, the rooster is knocking out my door, I'm still in bed, my mom is asking for the neighbor to find me a groom. Statistics, most of the married couples sleep in separate beds and my mom is asking Siri to find me a groom. Get out of my head. I will find my partner after I find myself. And in the meantime, I raise my glass in the name of being single. This verse is followed by the hook, which translates into English is, When will you get married? When will you find stability? When will you get married? And the bank keeps calling me to visit it. Tell them, don't worry, I'm okay. Sing to them, everything is good and settled. Tell them, don't worry, I'm okay. No mortgage and still struggling. I chose the song for today's lecture because today's lecture is about the many types of feminism. In the last lecture, we discussed the variety of issues feminist movements have worked on and organized around in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries in Canada and the United States. Today, we are going to think and speak more formally about the various kinds of feminisms and approaches to feminism. As I stated at the start of this course, there are limits to focusing on Canada and the United States. I've chosen to do so as this course is through McGill University, located on unceded territory in Montreal, Canada, and it makes sense to speak to the context in which the course is happening, as well as the American context, as American feminisms have such a large impact such a large impact on Canadian feminisms. However, there are limits to focusing on federal 
state, and provincial boundaries. To begin, the world is deeply interconnected, and nation-states do not exist in a bubble. It is through the structure of the nation-state that colonial and neocolonial violence is perpetuated, as well as injustice to immigrants. Borders can be sites of violence, and by focusing on the nation-state as a framework, I risk reifying these boundaries. However, while much of the activism done by feminists is around interpersonal relationships and showing how the personal is political, the legal context matters. A significant amount of organizing contests, advocates for, or is in conversation with laws and policies. These laws are usually determined within a federal, provincial, state, or municipal context. In this way, these legal boundaries are important to understand as the activist response often has to attend to these legal frameworks or is held within the boundaries of that legal context. So while feminists across the globe will share common goals, it is important to attend to the specific social, cultural, and legal context of the place. A solution in one area will not always work in another area. In an upcoming lecture, we will be discussing the issue of Western feminists who try to export their perspectives onto other cultures. So don't worry, we will return to this big topic. However, I raise this point now to say that there is a diversity of opinions about the best way to do feminism within groups of feminists. Feminist activists are also individual humans with their own concerns, desires, and needs, and will be interested in spending their time on some issues more than others. Let's get into it. Let's start with liberal feminism. The word liberal in liberal feminism speaks to the difference between big L and little L liberalism. Here, liberalism doesn't stand for leftist. Rather, liberal here denotes an emphasis on theory of individual rights and basic liberties. Liberal feminists focus on changing legislation and working from within the system of society. Liberal feminism works within the structure of mainstream society to integrate women into that structure. Think about the push to get more women into CEO positions or women into high political office. I sometimes like to think of liberal feminism as a kind of trickle-down feminism. There is somewhat the thought that if women are at the top of organizations, then sexism will be upended throughout the system. While representation, diversity, and inclusion are important, oftentimes as women or other marginalized groups rise into positions of power, the individuals who rise are oftentimes the people who are most able to fit into those patriarchal systems and emulate sexist norms. Historically, now the National Organization for Women's National Chapter in the United States was more of a liberal feminist organization, although local chapters varied. Today, we can think about people like Hillary Clinton or Sheryl Sandberg, though they are different, as working within a liberal feminist context. So, the next type of feminism we're going to discuss is radical feminism. The word radical can be a bit confusing. In some contexts, radical can mean intense or extreme. In the 1990s pop cultural surf context, radical, like very cool was a way of saying awesome. However, the radical of radical feminism is more like the math meaning of radical, radical as the root. Radical feminism is a branch of feminism distinguished by its study of patriarchy as an end in itself. Radical feminists view the oppression of women as the most fundamental form of oppression, one that cuts across boundaries of race, culture, and economic class. While liberal feminists want to make things better within the system, Radical feminists want to overthrow the system. Within radical feminism, there is radical lesbian separatist feminism. Radical lesbian separatist feminists thought that the system was too broken to fix, so many tried to go back to the land or create separatist women-only spaces within cities. 
Some of these groups were or are trans-exclusionary. Note, not all radical lesbian feminists are or were separatists. The next type of feminism we're going to discuss is Marxist feminism and also socialist feminisms. These types of feminisms look at the intersections of classism and sexism. Marxist feminists build off of Karl Marx's class critiques and include gender, viewing classism and sexism as the most fundamental forms of oppression. Socialist feminisms say yes and. Socialist feminisms think classism and sexism are key, but so are other kinds of oppression. Now, cultural feminism focuses on the development of women's culture. In the optional reading, Alice Eccles' Daring to be Bad, Radical Feminism in America, 1967-1965, in it, Eccles argues that the cultural feminism is an offshoot from radical feminism. She argues that radical feminists focused on the sexual politics of personal life. She states that radical feminism is so poorly understood and so frequently conflated with cultural feminism. This conceptual confusion arises in part because radical feminism was not monolithic and aspects of radical feminism did indeed anticipate cultural feminism. And the emergence of lesbian feminism edged the movement closer to cultural feminism. Its emphasis on female counterculture, its emphasis on a female counterculture and its essentialist argument about female sexuality were quintessential to cultural feminism. In her book, Eccles argues that radical feminism remained the hegemonic tendency within the women's liberation movement until 1973 when cultural feminism began to cohere and challenge its dominance. After 1975, a year of conflicts between radical and cultural feminists, cultural feminism eclipsed radical feminism as the dominant tendency within the women's liberation movement and as a consequence of liberal feminism became the recognized voice of the women's movement. While cultural feminism did evolve from radical feminism, it nonetheless deviated from it in some crucial respects. So Eccles states that, Most fundamentally radical feminism was a political movement dedicated to eliminating the sex class system, whereas cultural feminism was a countercultural movement aimed at reversing the cultural valuation of the male and the devaluated of the female. In the terminology of today, radical feminists were typically social constructionists who wanted to render gender irrelevant, while cultural feminists were generally essentialists who sought to celebrate femaleness. So that's a pretty big difference, and it's quite fascinating how a gender essentialist movement, cultural feminism, was an offshoot from a social constructionist movement, radical feminism. But you can see how this kind of happens in part with the focus on gender above all other forms of oppression. Eccles shows that radical feminist tendency to subordinate class and race to gender and to speak hyperbolically about a universal sisterhood was in large measure a reaction to the left's penchant for privileging class or race over gender. Radical feminists organized the movement in such a way to persuade women that gender united them more than class or race divided them. This led to a kind of homogenization of women's various experiences within radical feminist discourse, and then you can see how that can lead to gender essentialist cultural feminism. But if we are to think about the true roots of radical feminists, for radical feminists, women's liberation does not mean equality with men, for equality in an unjust society is meaningless. Rather, they argue that radical women wanted equality in a just society. This is what makes them different from liberal feminists. Eccles has this great line, 
on page 199, which is, by 1973, radical feminism was beginning to give way to cultural feminism and liberal feminism. In the early 70s, liberal feminism broadened its analysis as it moved away from Betty Friedan's economics, economistic and legalistic approach, and embraced aspects of radical feminism. In contrast to Friedan, who had disparage radical feminists focus on the personal. Many liberal feminists came to agree with radical feminists that there is a political dimension to personal life. Now chapters even began to establish consciousness raising groups for interested women. So consciousness raising groups, again, are when women would come together and talk about different issues of sexism in their lives. So I find that sign very valuable because it points to the ways that ideas ebbed and flowed within feminist movements and the way an individual might move in between these movements. I think this line is important too because it speaks to the way that all these kinds of feminisms offer different valuable approaches. As I continue to talk about different kinds of feminisms, I want to point out that I think it is actually really useful to have all of these approaches. None are perfect. It's a shame when infighting tears groups apart or when discussions of differences become the only point of focus rather than challenging the patriarchy and oppression. However, having lots of approaches allows us to approach these challenges in a variety of ways. Why not push for more representation of women in positions of power while also doing grassroots organizing and other kinds of work? So to recap and take us further, there are many types of feminism. Marxist feminists tend to focus on economic and gender oppression with a focus on capitalism, where socialist feminists broaden Marxist analysis and argue that both capitalism and sexism are equally oppressive. Radical feminists see patriarchy as the most trans-historical and cross-cultural form of oppression and believe that only through restructuring all institutions can equality be achieved. Radical lesbian separatists believe that as it stands, society is so intrinsically misogynistic that the best course is to separate and form women-only communities. Liberal feminists focus on political and legal reform and are less interested in tearing down institutions and are more invested in helping women move into positions of power. Okay, so now let's build from there. Black feminisms tie together race, class, and gender oppressions. In the next lecture, we will focus on important black feminist thinkers such as Patricia Hill Collins. We've already worked, we have already looked at the writings by the Cumahee River Collective and discussed Bell Hooks' approaches. Womanism originates from black feminism and also seeks to critique racism within white feminist movements, and thus the differentiation in the name. Womanism is a social change perspective based upon the everyday problems and experiences of black women and other women of minority demographics, but more broadly seeks methods to eradicate inequalities, not just for black women, but for all people. Alice Walker is credited with coining the term in 1970 or 1970, 1980. Chicana feminism focuses on Mexican-American, Chicana and Hispanic, Latina women in the United States. Latina Latina, Latinx feminisms foreground Latin, Latino, Latina arriba, Latinx experiences. Decolonial feminisms are from and at the grassroots, are from and at colonial difference, with a strong emphasis and grounded in looking at the role of colonialism. Indigenous feminisms show that colonialism is intricately tied to social injustice and ties together intersectional feminisms with decolonialism and indigenous sovereignty. 
Indigenous feminism is an intersectional theory and practice of feminism that focuses on decolonization and Indigenous sovereignty. The focus is on upon empowering Indigenous women and two-spirit folks in the context of Indigenous cultural values and priorities rather than mainstream, white, patriarchal ones. Leanne Berasamosake Simpson of the Anishinaabe Nation writes, start quote, I think it's all in our best interest to take on gender violence as a core resurgence project, a core decolonization project, a core of any indigenous mobilization. This begins for me by looking at how gender is conceptualized and actualized within indigenous thought because it is colonialism that has imposed an artificial gender binary in my nation, end quote. However, as Paula Gunn Allen wrote in the reading that we looked at earlier, beliefs, attitudes, and laws such as these became part of the vision of American feminists and of other human liberation movements around the world. Yet feminists too often believe that no one has ever experienced the kind of society that empowered women and made that empowerment the basis of its rules of civilization. The price the feminist community must pay because it is not aware of the recent presence of gynarchal societies on this continent is unnecessary confusion, division, and much less time. We as feminists must be aware of our history on this continent. We need to recognize that the same forces that devastated the gynarchies of Britain and the continent also devastated the ancient African civilizations, and we must know that those same materialistic anti-spiritual forces are presently engaged in wiping out the same gynarchical values along with the peoples who adhere to them in Latin America. End quote. It is because of these histories and present colonialism within feminist movements that some indigenous activists reject the term feminism and indigenous feminisms. Olivia Moore, a two-spirit member of the Penobscot Nation and co-founder of Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Movement, says that while she is an antagonistic to feminism, she doesn't identify with the term feminist, as she views mainstream feminism as too focused on individualism. Olivia Moore discusses how her culture already has a different model of being in the world than the patriarchal Western capitalist systems. She is invested in matriarchy, which is not a power swap of women to men in the current power system. Rather, matriarchy is about nurturing and inter interdependence. She states, Matriarchy is not about flipping patriarchy. It is not about all of the power coming into the hands of women. It is about valuing and nurturing regeneration and centering nurturing in all decision-making. She further states, All social, political, and economic community activities respect regeneration, including childbearing, childrearing, and the child themselves. Regeneration is also seed-keeping and respectful hunting of animal relatives and gathering of plants. Regeneration is burning land as a management tool. Rematriation values regeneration and nurtures the power and gifts that we each innately carry. That value is extended to all of our relatives, human and more than human. So, indigenous feminisms and the critiques and our choice not to not invest in feminism due to the dominance of the white western lens are not alone. Third world feminism critiques Western bias to feminist movements and not taking into account the needs of women in the global South, developing world, third world. This term is less prevalent and feminists in the global South tend to use other terms 
now. I've included it for when we read Mohanty's work later this term, and we'll also, in that discussion, talk about the terms of Global South, Developing World, Third World in more detail then. Transnational feminisms are concerned with how globalization and capitalism affect people across nations, races, genders, classes, and sexualities, yet there are feminisms situated around geographic place. African feminisms is are a type of feminism innovated by African women that specifically address the conditions and needs of continental African women, African women who reside on the African continent. Asian feminisms focus on the experiences of Asian women. Anarcha feminists, also called anarchist feminists, bring a gender critique into anarchist theory and approach the struggle against state hierarchies as tied to gender and economics. Anarchist feminists generally view patriarchy and traditional gender roles as a manifestation of involuntarily coercive hierarchy that should be replaced by decentralized free association. They believe that the struggle against patriarchy is an essential part of class conflict and the anarchist struggle against the state and capitalism. Ecofeminists break into two groups, those that view women as being inherently closer to mother nature and those that also identify as feminist environmentalists and who view the extraction of the earth's natural resources as tied to the subjugation of women's bodies. So you have a kind of the essentialist earth goddess ecofeminist, which was a thread more popular in the 1980s, and then the feminist environmentalist who takes seriously environmental racism and environmental sexism. Next is transfeminisms. So in 2001, Emi Koyama published the Trans Feminist Manifesto writing, transfeminism is primarily a movement by and for trans women who view their liberation to be intrinsically linked to the liberation of all women and beyond. It is also open to other queers, intersex people, trans men, non-trans women, non-trans men, and others who are sympathetic toward the needs of trans women and consider their alliance with trans women to be essential for their own liberation. Trans feminists challenge trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Post-structural feminism is a branch of feminism that engages with insights from post-structuralist thought. Post-structural feminism emphasizes the contingent and discursive nature of all identities, and in particular, the social construction of gendered subjectivities. Postmodern feminism is an approach to feminist theory that incorporates postmodern and post-structuralist theory. Cyberfeminism is a genre of contemporary feminism which foregrounds the relationship between cyberspace, the internet, and technology. Relatedly, there is post-humanist feminism moving beyond the body. There are also more. There are debates between feminists involved in these separate groups as well as disagreements between feminists within these groups. These labels furthermore do not encompass all approaches to feminism. Each form of feminism has offered and continues to bring different strategies to tackle social injustice. These groups differ in that they have different ideas about what the root of oppression is, how power develops, the roots of power, and the roots of marginalization. They differ in their ideas about solutions. Some feminisms are focused on the needs of a particular group. An individual may identify with more than one type of feminism, such as a black Marxist, lesbian, cyberfeminist. There are also factors of why someone may or may not identify with certain labels. An individual may have other political affiliations or other activist obligations. A person may have social obligations, familial obligations, and economic obligations. 
I'm not interested in imposing a single prescriptive definition of feminism. Feminism is an ideal that one is striving towards. Feminism is not static, but is a process. Remember when we talked about maternal feminism of the 19th and early 20th century? Certain feminisms are also located within certain time periods and are useful or more popular during a particular moment. We can still see traces of certain women finding empowerment in their activism by positioning themselves as mothers, whether it was women advocating for clean water and sewage infrastructure at the end of the 19th century as a form of environmental activism, peace anti-nuclear activists in the 1960s and 70s, or groups such as the Wall of Moms who positioned themselves in front of Black Lives Matter protesters in Portland, Oregon in July of 2020 in order to use their privilege, knowing they are less likely to get beat up by cops. So traces of maternal feminism are still present, yet that form of feminism, maternal feminism, is really a late 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon. We can also see changing interests in certain feminist theories and frameworks. This leads us to the next part of today's lecture. What is intersectionality? Let's start by talking about the TED Talk of Black legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, the woman who coined the term intersectionality in her insightful 1989 essay, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics, and built upon by her leader work, Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color. Crenshaw begins her TED Talk by drawing attention to how the audience overall knows the names of Black men killed by police, but not Black women. She states, I mean, there are two issues involved here. There's police violence against African-Americans and there's violence against women, two issues that have been talked about a lot lately. But when we think about who is implicated by these problems, when we think about who's victimized by these problems, the names of these black women never come to mind. She says that the way we frame these issues leave black women out. Crenshaw says that without frames, which as she says, that allow us to see how social problems impact all the members of a targeted group. Many will fall through the cracks of our movements, left to suffer in virtual isolation. This brings us to her coining the term intersectionality to deal with the fact that many of our social justice problems like racism and sexism are often overlapping, creating multiple levels of social injustice. This leads us to think about her work Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics, and how the case of Emma de Graffenried was key to her coining the term. The court would only see gender or racial discrimination, but did not have a frame to understand the racialized gender discrimination she was facing and the gendered racial discrimination she experienced. As Crenshaw states, why wasn't the real unfairness law's refusal to protect African-American women simply because their experiences weren't exactly the same as white women and African-American men. Rather than broadening the frame to include African-American women, the court simply tossed their case completely out. In her paper, she urges us to not treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories. Her talk continues to speak to the ways that the violence against Black women has been rendered invisible. She talks about this Say Her Name movement, begun in 2014. We can see in recent months the way that Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old African-American emergency medical technician who Louisville Metro Police Department officers fatally shot murdered on March 13th, 2020 while she is sleeping in her bed. We can see the way that her case, Breonna Taylor's case, has not received the same kind of media attention as other prominent cases of police violence. 
Crenshaw argues that intersectionality provides a framework in order to see the intersection of the racism and sexism Black women face. In her talk, Crenshaw also states, I would go on to learn that African-American women, like other women of color, like other socially marginalized people all over the world, were facing all kinds of dilemmas and challenges as a consequence of intersectionality, intersections of race and gender, of heterosexism, transphobia, xenophobia, ableism, all of these social dynamics come together and create challenges that are sometimes quite unique. We will look at the ways that in which intersectionality has been expanded. Intersectionality, as coined by Crenshaw, brings together race, class, and gender analysis, but has also since been broadened to address heterosexism, transphobia, ableism, ageism, and discrimination based on ethnicity, religion, immigration status, and more. But it's important to always remember the roots of this term are in Black feminism. Intersectionality is not additive. It is not about racism plus sexism, but rather how these categories interact. Racism is gendered. Sexism is racialized. A person will experience oppression differently based on their other identity factors. So for example, a Latina lesbian with a mobility disability will experience ableism differently than a white cisgender straight man, rich man with a mobility disability and differently than a white cisgender straight working class man with a mobility disability. For one, class difference will change the individual's ability to access certain technologies such as wheelchairs or vans with lifts. Intersectionality is not about the quote-unquote, oppression Olympics. It's not a competition about seeing who has the most privilege or faces the most oppression. Intersectionality rather enables us to better understand and attend to the needs of different people and groups within a community. Asian transgender women will experience the world differently than black transgender women and differently than white transgender women. If the needs of white transgender women are prioritized within a community organization, focused on the needs of transgender women, due to racial privilege, other transgender women in the community's needs will not be met. It's important to think about the ways in which identities such as race, class, gender, sexual orientation, disability, immigration status, age, and ethnicity mean different things in different contexts as well. What it means to be a queer black woman in Montreal, Quebec, is different than in Lagos, Nigeria, than in Houston, Texas, than in Osaka, Japan intersectionality is a really important framework. While Crenshaw coined the term in 1989, we can see the roots earlier. In 1851, Sojourner Truth, who was an abolitionist and formerly enslaved, gave an important speech at the Ohio Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. The speech became widely known during the Civil War by the name, by the title, Anti-Woman, a very, which was actually a variation of Truth's original speech and written and distributed by Francis Dana Barker Gage. Curiously, Gage not only changed all of Sojourner's words, but chose to re- represent Sojourner's speaking in a stereotypical Southern Black slave accent, rather than in Sojourner's distinct Upper New York State Low Dutch accent as Sojourner Truth was from New York, where she was enslaved, and grew up speaking Dutch as her first language. I link to the SojournerTruthProject.com site that has different versions of the speech performed by Black Dutch women whose accents would be more similar to Sojourner Truth. In both versions of the speech, Truth points to the way that the experiences of Black women were being ignored by women's rights activists. 
She points to the ways that many of the arguments being used against women's rights ignore the physical labor done by black women. So while Truth is not using the term intersectionality, she is pointing to intersectionality as well as an issue we see repeatedly of black women's experiences being marginalized in feminist activism and in anti-racist activism, which at the time was primarily abolitionism. Truth's speech was not the only example. Double Jeopardy is a pamphlet which was written by Frances M. Beale in 1969. The pamphlet was later revised and then published in The Black Woman, an anthology edited by Tony Cade Bambara in 1970. Beale's essay talks about the misconceptions and troubles which come about when one tries to analyze the role of black women in society. The pamphlet covers many different aspects of life and how they pertain to black women or non-white women compared to how they pertain to white women, white men, and non-white men. In the last lecture, we talked about the work of the Cumbahee River Collective and their 1977 statement that brought together the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexual orientation. They also talk about the matrix of oppression. The idea of the matrix of oppression is a slightly different metaphor as is the term interlocking oppressions, which tends to conjure more the idea of additive oppressions rather than intersecting oppressions. However, we can see that Crenshaw builds upon these ideas in her own work. As she writes in later work, Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color, Crenshaw writes, The problem with identity politics is not that it fails to transcend difference, as some critics charge, but rather the opposite, that it frequently conflates or ignores intergroup differences. So let us remember that Crenshaw is a prominent figure in critical race theory and a professor at UCLA School of Law and Columbia Law School specializing in race and gender issues. She wrote this piece from that per specific perspective, centering on American Black women's experiences and the legal context. The theory continues to be used and has become pretty dominant in feminist discourse and within feminist studies. The next lecture will discuss race, racism, and anti-racism. Have a good day. All the videos, songs, images, and graphics used in the podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is school bell dot wave from 13F Panska Stranska McKaylin. The closing bell is from Inspector J's bell calendar dot a dot wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in the Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted and authorized use of copyright materials for specific mandate purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news report. For research and privacy, education, parody, satire, no special requirements are required for criticism, review, and news reporting. The source and author must be named and constitute fair dealing. This is an educational podcast with no advertisements.